If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it up to Philippians chapter three. Um, Philippians chapter three. I'll try to uh, I'll try to go a little quick tonight with some of the things that the Lord uh, has has shown me this week and um, and and last week. Philippians chapter three. We've we've been reading through a lot of different scripture. We've read Colossians. We've read Ephesians. We've read uh, Philippians. We've read uh, st- started in um, Hebrews. Uh, today we've we've been doing a lot of different reading. In the New Testament, and so if you're if you're new tonight or hadn't been with us in a while, uh, we've been teaching on Wednesday nights through different texts, scriptures that we've been reading in our Bible reading plan from week to week together as a church. And so, um, since we we just finished up Philippians, I'll be honest. There's several things in Colossians, of course, Ephesians, um, Philippians. There were so many different things to choose from since the last time that we met together. But I landed um, on a passage of scripture from Philippians. Um, chapter uh, number three. So that's where we're going to sit um, a little bit tonight. But really, the, the the topic that I want us to think about is commitment. And I was thinking about um, just what, what Paul was writing to the church at Philippi and how much it stressed how committed he was to furthering the gospel of Jesus. It kind of made me think of commitment in general and even some of you know, my commitments that I have in my life. And so I looked up the word uh, commitment just from dictionary.com, and the, the definition was this, a pledge or promise, an obligation. That was the, the, the description, the definition of the word commitment. And I thought to myself, what would you say, like literally, what, what would you say in the room are some of your biggest commitments? Marriage, massive commitment, right? More so now than you thought maybe in the beginning, right? Family, children, right? That whole marriage, family, kids, you know, extended family, right? Big commitments that we have there. What else? Commitments that you would say you have. Church, job, I heard, uh, work, right? Commitments in your life. I would say mine are, are the same way. Most of us probably have the same commitments that we would talk about. Family commitments. I think about just recently with Thanksgiving and visiting family and, you know, going places for the holidays. Of course, we have the, the, the Boudreaux family. My parents are separated. And so you got dad's people, you got mom's people, and then you got the other, you got the Smith family, right? My wife's family. So then, uh, you know, you gotta go, you gotta go see them. And then you got your own family, your spouse, your kids. A lot of commitments when it comes to family. You have other uh, kind of relationship commitments that are just day-to-day, right, that aren't even just about extended family, but finding the time that you need to spend with your spouse or the time that you need to spend with your kids or the time that you need to spend with friends, right, That that th- those other relationships that uh, you've had in your life. We've got work commitments, schedules, hours, days that, you know, you got to be at the office. Um, I think about you know, just personally, every day, 8 a.m., ministry projects, staff meetings, sermons, uh, visits. I mean, there are all kinds of things that we have with work. We all have those types of commitments. I think about the category that I just called life commitments, and I summed it up like this. Bills, 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 right? They're coming in every day. You owe somebody something. You you know, it, it costs to live on this earth. There are numerous commitments that each of us could probably name if we just sat around talking about the different things, different commitments that we have. But I think most of them would fit into one of these categories, the categories that you shared 
around the room tonight. A lot of us have different commitments. However, I was thinking about commitments like that in, in our lives, and I thought about how sometimes, and you, you may not be this way, it may just be me, but sometimes we're committed to so many different things that we lose sight of the most important commitments in our lives. Matter of fact, I think about a time uh, back, in my, back in my college days when I was youth pastoring for, for the first time at a little church called Tucker's Cross and Baptist Church. You've heard me mention them before. And uh, it was a great little church, paid me 50 bucks a week, um, didn't have a whole lot of responsibilities. No one asked me what I was doing or checked in on me. I just had this 30-member youth group that I got to do whatever I wanted to do with, and it was awesome. Uh, times were much simpler back then, and sometimes uh, I miss those days. But anyway, that church was really good to me. Um, but one of the most incredible things that, that happened uh, while I was there was I met a wonderful woman. Her name was Kayla, and she is now my wife. Now, that's not the commitment that I want to talk about. I just need that part of the story for the next part of the story. That was also a big commitment, but it's not the one uh, that I'm thinking of. When, when Kayla and I started dating, and we got serious, and I asked her if she would marry me. Of course, that news spread throughout our community, throughout our church, our families, Kayla was, I wish I knew somebody here that maybe fit the same kind of category. I don't, you may instantly think of somebody, but Kayla at Tucker's Crossing was like the golden child of the church. Um, she had been there her entire life. Um, her pastor, Eddie Bryant, uh, you may, you, you probably don't know him, but brother Eddie pastored Tucker's Crossing for 40 something years, I think. Kayla only had one pastor her entire life. Um, her grandparents went there, her family went there, her cousins went there, like they, they were all there and everybody loved Kayla. She was the hostess for the church. She did BBS every year. She planned their mission activities. Matter of fact, she was, when I, when I first got there, I think she was 22 or 23 and she was in charge. Shortly after I got there, they did a huge, I think $1.3 million building project, which for Tucker's Crossing, I mean, which for anybody, it's a lot of money. But for Tucker's Crossing, it was kind of like laughable. Like, why in the world are we going to do something like that? We don't have that kind of money. But they, they, they went off into this huge building plan. And Kayla was the one that they put over the financial team to make brochures and raise the money. Like 22-year-old uh, Kayla Smith. So anyway, she, she was like the golden child of Tucker's Crossing. And so I'm making 50 bucks a week. Most people laughed at me when they saw me coming because that's the silly youth guy. Like, you know, they're a dime a dozen. We've had a thousand of them here. They stay for a week. They're gone the next week. Anyway, nobody really cared. But when Kayla Smith said yes to marry me, I became a celebrity at Tucker's Crossing. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I think they were so scared that I was going to take Kayla Smith away, which, by the way, that, that did happen. But I think they were so scared that I was going to take her away that they offered me more money than any other youth pastor in the history of Tucker's Crossing has ever gotten. Now, it really wasn't money. I still made $50 a week. But here's what they did. 19 years old. I'm at Jones Junior College. I ain't got a lick of sense. Like, if you think I ain't got a lick of sense now, it really wasn't good at 19, all right? To keep me there, which really was code for keep Kayla Smith there, they gave me a house. I know, right? Well, I mean, as long as I was serving there, I guess they didn't really give it to me. But anyway, they gave me a little house. It's called Thelma's house. It was a it was a, a a widow lady whose husband had died years you know several years before uh, she passed away and she did, they didn't have any kids and whenever she was she was doing her will uh, she gave the house she willed the house to the church 
she wanted them to have them. So she had passed away, and uh, they had this house, and it's forever. I, I, we still call it Thelma's house when we talk about it, you know, anytime. And when new youth pastors have come in, they go to Thelma's house. So anyway, they, they let me live in Thelma's house. And so listen, I'm talking super ugly house. I mean, really, really was pitiful. But I'm 19, making 50 bucks a week. I got a Capital One credit card that, like, let's be honest, what was I thinking, right? I barely paid my gas money to get around, and they gave me a house. Now, that's not really the huge commitment either. Here's the huge commitment. I am living in the clouds right now. Kayla Smith, for whatever reason, said yes, all right? The church, for whatever reason, has given this 19-year-old crazy dude a house, and I've got no cares in the world. Like, it's awesome. So here was one of the very first things I did. I hooked my Xbox. I know, right? <laughs> I hooked my Xbox up to my TV, and I went, this TV is way too small for my Xbox. So they had a place in Laurel called Aaron's Rent to Own. And they didn't care who you were. You didn't even have to give them a last name. Just sign Danny and walk out, right? They didn't care. And so I bought this TV from Aaron's Rent to Own for like $10 a month that probably cost $100 that I ended up paying like three grand for because obviously that was a crazy decision. And listen, it got so bad that I didn't even eat sometimes because I had to pay this money on this ridiculous big screen TV. I couldn't even pay for my Xbox membership to play on the TV anymore. And I thought to myself, how often, I know that's silly, right? It's really silly now thinking about it. How often do we overcommit ourselves to things in our lives? Now, I know big screen TV, dumb. I, I know financial stuff. Sometimes we go bite off more than we can chew. I understand that. But what about all the other things in our lives? Commitments that we make and things that we say yes to and more and more and more and more. And we're so stretched and so thin and so overcommitted that, listen, we can't focus on what's most important. We can't any longer be committed to what we need to be committed to. And what happens is we start majoring on the minors. And everything in our life that has to be important because we've committed to it really doesn't matter. But because we committed to it, we can't focus on the things that really do. And listen, in this thought process of the commitments in our lives, Paul really does shed some perspective on what our commitment really should look like. As a matter of fact, I want to read it to you. It's in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start with verse number 12. I, I just I want you to hear the heart of Paul, and then we're going to run through some things really, really quickly. Philippians 3, verse 12. Let's read it together. Not that I have already obtained this. This is Paul writing. Or am already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So you see the commitment from the beginning. It's really about Jesus. He goes on. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Obviously, it's easy to notice Paul's commitment is ultimately to Jesus. But he goes on, verse 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. By the way, that's oftentimes not me. Those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. I like that phrase. It's almost like Paul saying, and if you think it should be any other way, don't worry. I'm going to pray that God will make you realize that it shouldn't, right? You're wrong. You just don't know it yet. God's going to show you. And he goes on. He says, only, right? Those who are mature think this way. Anything else, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. How much of a contrast is that, by the way? from the commitment that Paul's showing you he has toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's pressing on, forgetting everything else, pressing on toward Jesus, but that's not what a lot of people are doing. Instead, a lot of people, their, their, their minds are set on earthly things. They're not set on Jesus. He goes on, though, verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul closes out Philippians chapter 3 with this passionate display of His greatest commitments. And I thought from this, I don't know about you, but I was challenged, I was reading this, I was challenged maybe my commitments in life should look a little bit more like what Paul is explaining to the church at Philippi. Let me help you see it. Here's the first commitment that I think he really points out. It is for all of us, right? Those who claim Jesus, it is for us to commit to strain forward. Now, I want to help you see this. Look back at verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I Press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, to get a full picture of what he's saying he hasn't obtained, but what he's pressing on toward, you got to look back at Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Here's what he said. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what he's straining forward toward. He is seeking after Jesus. Now listen, Paul doesn't consider himself to be perfect. And in fact, he's really not even seeking perfection. He's seeking the righteousness of Jesus because he longs to have a place with Jesus in eternity. He presses on to serve Jesus every day. Why? Because all that Jesus has done for him. He says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I don't know about you, friends, but I don't think there should be any 
greater motivation that we need for us to serve Jesus than to think about all that He has done for us. When we think about what Jesus has done for us, our only natural response should be to serve Him with our lives. But listen, I want you to see this a little bit deeper. Paul takes it even further than just serving Jesus. As a matter of fact, the phrase, press on, in verse number 12, comes from the Greek word which means to pursue. The word for press on, this word that means to pursue, is deeper than just the typical pursuit of something. It carries with it the idea of pursuing something with the greatest of passion. Now, to help you get this type of pressing on, this type of, 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 of straining forward, to get this really wrapped around in your mind, I need you to get this perspective of Paul's passion displayed in another place in Philippians chapter 3. As a matter of fact, he uses the same word for press on in verse number 6. Go there real quick. I want you to see this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. You shouldn't even have to turn a page. Just move your eyes and look at it. Here's what he writes. He's talking about his credentials and how great he was at one time. And he says this, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now listen, Paul's describing how passionate he was in his life before Jesus. Now, looking at verse number 6, I want you to, I want you to see this. Looking at Philippians 3, 6, which word do you think in that verse is the same word as press on in verse number 12? Anybody want to make a guess? What? Not zeal. Give me another guess. It's the exact same word. What would you say, Miss Sandra? Oh. The word in Philippians 3.6 that's translated as persecutor is the exact same Greek word that later in verse number 12 is translated as press on. It is a passionate pursuit that will pursue something with the greatest of passion. Right? Let that soak in for a moment. You say, Danny, why is this significant? Because listen, the same commitment that Paul gave to destroying the church of Jesus is the same commitment that he now gives to furthering it. Now you say, Danny, why, why are you trying to point this out? Because listen, I don't know if you remember this from Paul's early life in, in, in the beginning chapters of the book of Acts, but he is so zealous. He is so passionate. He is so serious about his call as a Pharisee that he is literally charging people to kill those who follow Jesus. Now listen, you might not like somebody, but if you tell me you don't like them to the point that you're killing people, that's a whole nother level, level of passion. Amen? That's the type of pursuit that Paul described his life before Jesus. And then he uses the same word to talk about what Jesus was now doing in his life. Just as passionately as he was against Jesus before he knew him, is the same passion that he gives to making the righteousness of Jesus his daily practice. Now listen, I think this is evident in all sorts of people's lives who have been changed by Jesus. 
They were so passionate about something that they could not live without. And then they met Jesus, and it was like that doesn't even exist anymore. It doesn't even come close to what Jesus now means in their life. This is what Paul means when he talks about straining forward. This is what he means when he talks about pressing on. I wonder what would happen in our lives if serving Jesus was the most important commitment that we had. Look back at verse 13. He goes on. The strain forward only gets stronger. He says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. That righteousness, that perfection, that... that it, it, mm. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now listen, I find this to be an incredible statement. Not just the statement itself, but just imagine for a moment who's writing these words. You're telling me the great Apostle Paul doesn't think he's arrived. Doesn't think he's reached Perfection doesn't think he's done enough. Instead, here's his mental picture. I must continue to press on, to strain forward to what lies ahead. He doesn't consider to have accomplished all that he needed to accomplish for Jesus. Now, I want to give you a better perspective of this because I think it's interesting being the Apostle Paul. He didn't consider his background to make or break what God wanted to do with him in the future. Previously in Philippians chapter 3, we get a quick little synopsis of the, 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 the bragging that Paul could do. It starts in Philippians 3, verse 3. I want to read it to you. Here's what Paul wrote. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Here's where he starts. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor, there's that press on word, of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It, he's that awesome. But don't miss this. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Listen, friends, whether you think you're better than others or worse than others because of your background, it really doesn't matter. God isn't concerned as much with your background as he is with your future. But I want you to see this too, if I can get it to go there. Paul didn't consider his previous work for God to make or break what God wanted to do with him in his future. His background didn't make or break it. But also, listen, his previous work for God didn't do it either. He is forgetting what he has done for Jesus in the past, and he is only thinking about what lies ahead. Now, I want to give you greater perspective of this. Because listen, if this is you and me talking, well, I can't speak for you. If this is me talking, I feel like God would be laughing in this moment because I feel like he would say, honestly, to Danny Boudreaux, here's what I think he would say. You know, Danny, I got a list of what you've done for me. It's really short. If you think you could in any way brag about what you've done, I mean, really, you can't. But listen, this isn't me 
writing these words. As a matter of fact, let me give you a picture of the previous work of Paul before this moment when he's writing Philippians chapter 3. Let me give you a perspective. You ready? Paul's career up to the time that he made this statement. Within a few weeks of his conversion, he had made such an impact on Damascus and had stirred up such opposition that he was forced to flee the city. You'll read this in Acts chapter 9, verse 25. Paul went to Arabia where he thought through Old Testament revelation in the light of the cross of Christ. He formulated the essence of New Testament doctrine and actually coined many of the words and expressions that are now the common currency of Christian theology. While waiting for God to call him to his life work, Paul evangelized, you ready? Arabia, Tarsus, and Cilicia. I don't know how many of you can claim to have evangelized an area, but Paul could. Then, moving to Syrian Antioch, at the urging of Barnabas, the apostle made a great impact on such a wicked city. Paul evangelized the island of Cyprus and founded a string of churches in Galatia, at Antioch Pisidia, at Iconium, at Lystra, at Derbe, and later in northern Galatia. He championed the cause of Christian liberty and helped the elders of the Jerusalem church understand that Gentiles did not have to become Jews in order to become Christians. By the way, this is a monumental achievement that set the church free from the shackles of Judaism. We should be excited about Paul's work. But that's not it. That's not all he's done up until this point. Let me continue. Paul pioneered the work in Europe where he planted thriving churches in Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, and Corinth. He made a memorable speech on Mars Hill before the intellectuals of the world. He evangelized Ephesus and left behind him a church which in turn reached out and planted other churches in Western Asia Minor. It keeps going. After years of traveling and preaching and teaching and exhorting, Paul arrived at Rome as a prisoner. Yet, even there, while he lived in constant peril of death, he was winning converts in the ranks of the imperial guard and extending the cause of Christ even into Caesar's palace. That's not it. Paul had influenced scores of young men to follow his example and give themselves to evangelizing, to pastoring, and to teaching. Let me give you a few of them. Timothy, Titus, Luke, Silas, Aristarchus, Segundus, Gaius, Tychius, the list goes on. The apostle had performed miracles, healing the lame, casting out demons, banishing fever, curing the sick, and raising the dead. He had suffered great hardships. He had been beaten. He had been scourged. He had been shipwrecked. He had been imprisoned. He had been stoned, mobbed, and mocked. Yet, Paul wrote, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Now think about that, friends. If Paul would say, my previous work for Jesus is not it. Where do we land on our commitment to strain forward for Jesus? What an amazing list of accomplishments for God, yet Paul did not consider anything to be finished or his work for God to be done. If you think you're done, friends, I can print you off that list and you can put it wherever you need to to look at it on a daily basis. 
Look back at verse 14. I want it to strain forward. I'm almost done with that one. I promise. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let me show you this last one here. Paul didn't consider the unknown to make or break what God wanted to do with his future. Even though he had done so much already, Paul let the past be the past, and he moved forward into what God had for him in the future. He saw people get saved. He saw churches planted. He saw communities change. But you know what went through his mind? What about Africa? What about Spain? What about Britain? What about Australia? What about Scotland? What about all the other places that had still not heard about Jesus. He was constantly seeking new ways to serve Jesus with his life. He had a tremendous burden to spread the gospel in every way possible. Like he wrote to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Listen, friends, the prize is salvation. No other name but Jesus. Strain forward to share his name with the world. Let me show you another commitment, though. Commit to stand firm. I love this one. It's a little bit shorter, by the way, so don't worry. We're getting there. Commit to stand firm. Look back at... Verses 15 and 16. This is such a funny segment to me in this passage. He goes, let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, if you think like me, you're one of the mature ones. If you don't think like me, you're just immature. Don't, you don't realize it yet, but you are. right? What a way to win an argument, by the way, with somebody that you're trying to talk to. He said, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. right? So what, you're wrong. You don't know it. God will reveal it to you. All right, it's coming. Only, I like this. Here it is, verse 16. Only let us hold true to what... We have attained. Now listen, I know I read off a lot of things, but I want you to see this. Paul wasn't saying all the things he said about himself, specifically in Philippians chapter 3. He wasn't saying all that about himself to magnify his dedication, but rather to motivate ours. That was his purpose. That's what he wanted. I didn't read about all of Paul's accomplishments to make us think that we're not doing enough or that we're not as good as he is or that we can earn more. I think Paul's life should not be to magnify him, but it should be to motivate us. It's like the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. You know what Paul knew? He knew that he was not the only one who had been placed in the race. He knew that all of us had been placed in the race. But here's what we do a lot of times today. We make Christianity a spectator sport. That's what we do, right? I can't remember that old phrase. It's, it's like a uh, the church is like a football game. There's 22 people on the field who are about to die, and there's like thousands in the stands who are doing nothing but trying to get them to do more, right? Like that's kind of the picture of what Christianity looks like. There's actually a much better quote than that, and I wish I had it. It just came to the top of my head, and it was really bad. So take all that back. But we treat it that way. You say, Danny, what do you mean? We have more access now to anybody in the world that we want to listen to. You know what you can do if you don't like me? You can get on podcasts. You can get on YouTube. You can get on websites. And you can listen to your actual favorite preacher anytime you want to. And listen, if you don't like what that guy's saying, you can find another guy who will say what you like to be said. You can find it. We have access to the greatest amount of teachings that we have ever had in the world. You know what that means? It means that if we needed more encouragement, more 
uh, 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 words, more sermons, more teaching. If we needed more of that to be better Christians, let me tell you something, friends. We've got more of it than we've ever had. But has that produced greater followers of Jesus? I think the reason is because we've turned Christianity into a spectator sport. We hear great things and we amen it and we like it. And it's, oh man, that's one of my favorites. And then we turn it off and we go about our life however we want to. But Paul reminds them, hold true to what we have attained. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about standing firm in all that God has already given us. He's saying more than just hear it and think about it and know it. That's good. He's saying, what are you going to do with it? When life comes, when opportunities take place, when you meet someone, when you have... When it happens, will you stand firm in what you have already attained? Listen, we could go through just the letter to the Philippians and just in this letter alone, if that's all Paul was talking about that they have attained, listen to me, it's enough. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul expresses thanks through prayer. It made me think, how often do we do that? Later in Philippians 1, Paul expresses the importance of sharing the gospel. I thought to myself, how often do we do that. Later in Philippians 1, Paul talks about living for Jesus. And I thought to myself, how often do we do that? In Philippians 2, he talks about loving others. How often do we express our love for others? In Philippians 2, again, he discusses the importance of being an example for Jesus. Would you consider yourself to be a good example of what Jesus is like? Later in Philippians 3, Paul talks about the importance of faith in Jesus. I thought, how much faith do we have in Jesus? Again, in Philippians 3, he stresses the importance of serving others. How are you serving others for the glory of God? In Philippians 4, he talks about prayer again. How's your prayer life? In Philippians 4, at the end, he talks about being content in Jesus. Is Jesus enough for you? I thought to myself, if that's all we had, it's enough for us to stand firm for Jesus. Are we? I don't know about you, but I would ask you, what are you, what are you doing with God's Word? There's nothing that can help us more in this life than God's truth. You want answers to the hardest questions? You want to know the purpose for your life? You want comfort in the hardest and most trying times? You want direction for your future? You name the most difficult struggles and questions, and I will guarantee that God's Word is the source you need to turn to. As a matter of fact, Paul put it like this to a young guy named Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Here's what he said. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And listen, I don't have time. we got to keep going. But I just want to give you two things, and I wish we could elaborate on it more. But instead of standing firm, I know for me, this is what typically happens in my life. I'm either complaining or I'm controlling. That's what I do. Either I complain because it's not how I want it. It's not going the way I think it should. I want to try to tell God how it should be, right? Like, oh, woe is me. And that becomes the story of my life rather than standing firm on everything that God's already told me and shown me, right? Oh, poor pitiful Danny. God's already promised me the victory. Why don't I stand in it? Or I try to control. God, you're not doing it. It's not happening like I want. So you know what? I'll make it happen, God. I'll do it the way it should be. done. I'll be God. 
He shows me again, Danny, you know what? I already got everything covered. I don't need you, but I want you. Why don't you stop the complaining? Why don't you stop the controlling? Why don't you just stand firm? Let me show you this last one, number three. Last commitment. It's my favorite, even though I'm going to help you fill in the blanks and we're going to go home. What if we would commit not just to strain forward? And what if we would commit not just to stand firm, but, but what if we would commit to simply follow? What if this is what commitments look like in our life? You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look, look back at verse 17 in Philippians 3. Brothers, here's what Paul says. Join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. What's he saying? He's saying this. What if you just return to being like Jesus? You know why Paul says imitate me? Because he's imitating Christ. I've often thought when I've read this verse, how many of us could make that same claim? How many of us could look at someone that we're discipling? First of all, how many of us are discipling somebody, right? That's a question in and of itself. But if we are helping someone follow after Jesus, can we tell them, imitate my life because I'm imitating Jesus? How many of us would want more of us? I bet not many. But this is the type of confidence that Paul could talk about. Why? Because he lived like Jesus. What if we committed to simply follow and just returned to being like Jesus? Or what about this one? What if we realized our burden for the lost? Like what if that's how we followed Jesus, right? We want to be like him and, and we begin to realize the same burden that Jesus has for lost people. Look, look at what Paul wrote back in 18 and 19. Look at it again. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. This is so beautiful. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. In other words, Paul's crying as he thinks about these people. He says they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know what Paul's doing? He's crying over people who are this type of lost. You know why? Because he had a burden for people to experience Jesus like he did. You know what Paul remembers? He was this person walking down a dark path, blinded by the God of this world, unable to see Jesus. Until Jesus showed up and changed everything. And you know what he's doing? He's thinking about those people. He's thinking about his old life. And he's got tears in his eyes. You know what I do? I go, you know what? That old lost and dying world out there that makes decisions I don't agree. I'm glad they're getting what they deserve. I'm glad things aren't going well for them. I'm glad they're falling on their face. I'm glad everything's destroyed. You know what? They are, we just need to pile them all up and drop a bomb on them. Probably shouldn't have said that. I'm being recorded right now. <laughs> Is that not how we think sometimes about people who are different than us? And listen, not just different. I'm talking about people who are lost. We're so mad that they're acting like lost people. You know what Paul does? He doesn't whine or complain or want harm for them. You know what he's doing? He's crying as he remembers the lostness and brokenness of our world as he seeks out the goodness of Jesus. I thought to myself, when was the last time I realized my burden for the lost? When is the last time that I shed tears for somebody who doesn't know Jesus? When was the last time that I simply followed Jesus like this. Let me show you this last one. Here it is. This is it. Simply follow Jesus. What do I mean? Return to being like Jesus. Realize our burden for the lost. 
remember we're bound for heaven. Look back at verses 20 and 21. He reminds us, but our citizenship, friends, I know it hurts. We're in a lost world. This culture is not our culture. This world is not our home. I know it will be difficult, but don't worry. Listen, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Him. Self. Listen, this earth is not our home. The things of this life should not demand our commitment before Jesus. We are simply passing through. Our focus is Christ. Listen, I want to end like this. I want to, I want to give you a question, first of all. What is my commitment to Jesus? Because here, here's what I believe. The greatest commitment of our lives is serving Jesus. That's the top. Everything else falls under that. Okay, That's the top one. What is my commitment to Jesus like? I read this. I'm going to leave you with this to, to think about. I read this several years back, and it has been so impactful in my life. I want to share it with you too. Listen, not in, a, not in a legalistic way. Be careful. But just you personally, I want you to internalize these words. You ready? Here's what I read. What kind of church would my church be if everyone was just like me? How many people would hear about Jesus if everyone shared their faith as often as I do? How much money would the church have if everyone was as generous as me? How would our attendance be if everyone came to Sunday school and worshiped as much as I do? How many people would have been prayed for this week if everyone prayed as much as me? How many children's volunteers would there be if everyone volunteered as much as me? Would we support any missionaries? Would we reach any new people in our community? Would there even be a youth group? Would anyone ever read their Bible? Would there ever be anyone at the altar before God? What kind of church would the local church be if everyone was just like me? I don't know what you feel when you heard that. But I'm convicted. What if every member, what if every part of the body of Christ was functioning like me? What kind of body would we be? Father, we love you. Thank you. Praise you. Jesus, you're awesome. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Father, thank you that we get to meet together and love on one another and pray for people and enjoy a meal and, God, spend time in your word. Father, I'm so thankful that every week we get to come together and be challenged and convicted and, and Father, to renew our commitment, the greatest commitment that we have to serve you with our lives. Jesus, as we're challenged by the Apostle Paul, even more than that, as we're challenged by your Holy Spirit who inspired this word, this pen, this writing, by this man. God, as we read these words and we're challenged, Father, I pray that you would take that challenge and turn it into commitment. Commitment, God, for you. Don't let Paul's words, his work, don't let that be something that magnifies him, but God, let it be something that motivates us to magnify you. God, I want the commitments in my life to be for you. Father, I want above everything else to know that I'm 
straining forward, that I'm simply following, I'm standing firm. God, I, I want to know that the commitments in my life are furthering, furthering your name through the nations. God, I want to advance your gospel every day in every way. Help us, Father, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.